welcome to Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss my love of horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. So I am counting down the days until my vacation. I leave on the 19th for California. Um, me and my daughter, of course, we're going to go visit Nana and Papa, and we'll be there for about eight days. We fly back on an overnight on the uh, Saturday the 27th, and I keep counting down the days because I just need a break from everything. I need a break from school, from work, and I just need a little extra help with Hamera. And we'll be visit. And since we will be visiting my Nana or her Nana and Papa. They'll be spending a lot of time with her and I'll be able to have a little bit of extra time to myself to get hopefully some extra sleep because I haven't slept in probably two and a half weeks. No, close to three weeks now. I just, I'm not doing well. Mentally and emotionally, I am completely drained. Like I said, I'm not sleeping at all, which is affecting me physically. I don't think I've had a good night's sleep in almost three weeks now. I wake up at least four times a night and I'll be up for an hour in the middle of the night. On top of that, I keep having all these nightmares every single night and then I'm afraid to go back to sleep. So I'm just like stressed out and I feel like I'm stretched beyond my limit. So I'm like, I just need this vacation. Hopefully this will help me reset and I can, I don't know, start over. I can figure things out from there, but I am just, like I said, I am like stretched beyond my limit. And a lot of it is because um, about two and a half weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, and I'm not getting much into detail. I'm sorry. It's really hard to talk about. But my daughter told her camp teacher something that her father had done to her in the past over a year ago. And since we're mandated reporters, they had to call this in. They had to call DCF and call it in. And of course, DCF sucks here and said that there wasn't enough information to open up an investigation into her father. The claims my daughter made, and she'll be seven in October, by the way, wasn't enough evidence for them to bother looking into it. I called them like a week after this had happened, being like, what's going on? Why is no one telling me anything? I wanna know how to protect my daughter and keep her safe. And the lady on the phone said to me, and I quote, if they thought your daughter was in any danger, they would have contacted you within 72 hours to set up a safety plan for her. So I'm like thinking if they thought my daughter was in danger. So basically DCF didn't think her claims were important enough. I said to the lady too, I was like, so what I'm hearing is that my daughter's claims aren't enough for you to even bother to look into it, that she's not important enough to you guys for you to care to open an investigation to keep her safe. So I am beyond angry, not just at my ex-husband for harming our child. I'm especially angry at DCF for failing my child. And what's worse is that according to our divorce decree, if my ex-husband shows up on one of his overnight days to say like, hey, I'm taking her for the night, I legally cannot do anything. I have to hand her over. There's nothing I can do to protect her once she's in his hands and he has left my house. And that scares the shit out of me. So I have been stressed nonstop since she made these claims between school, work, 
having her 24-7, which I want her now 24-7. I don't want her anywhere near her father. It's still the whole idea of like, I just, I don't know what to do. DCF failed us. They're not going to even look into it. And I'm just like, are you waiting until she's actually harmed? Are you waiting until he hurts her? Like, are you waiting until she's like physically assaulted by him for you to even bother to look into it? And that's pretty much here. RDCF does here in Vermont. That's all they do. They will not lift a finger or help a child or even look into it until the child has actually been physically assaulted by the person they're making their claims against. And I am just outright outraged about this and angry because I'm like, you could prevent this from happening if you just stepped in and assessed the situation of what's going on and then found the tools to help the family or realize, hey, we need to remove the child. But instead they just sit back, they don't do anything until the kid has had, the kid has to experience a severe trauma for them to even consider doing anything about it. A memory that they will carry into adulthood. Something that they will have to hold on to the rest of their life. They will not lift a finger until that happens. And I can't protect my child. So I have been beyond stressed out. I've been overwhelmed. I cry every single day now and I don't sleep. And like I said, I'm having nightmares. And for a little bit, I was like, I'm just going to quit the podcast. I can't do this anymore. Like I'm just overwhelmed. But at times I feel like this is my only outlet. Like it's my only form of escapism I have. It's very therapeutic for me to do this. I need this. I need my podcast. I need to continue doing it because for a little bit, I just, I don't know. It's just my escapism and I need this. So anyways, I'm going to stop talking about this and I'm going to move on to the next movie for the theme of good boy. That's a good boy with 2006, The Hills Have Eyes, directed by Alexandre Asia. I hope I said that right. Starring Ted Levine as Big Bob, Kathleen Quinlan as Ethel, Dan Bird as Bobby, Emily DeRavine as Brenda. Again, I'm sorry if I butchered these names. Aaron Stanford as Doug, Vanessa Shaw as Lynn, Tom Bauer as the gas station attendant, Billy Drago as Jupiter or Papa Jupiter, Laura Ortiz as Ruby, and Michael Bailey Smith as Pluto. So for horror and history, I think this does reflect a little bit on like the the political divide of our our nation um still happening today but definitely was a big aspect in the early 2000s between the democrats and republicans i think it's also a lot of reflection on us versus them like the us versus terrorists you know bush's whole war on terrorism and this idea that it's us or them it's us against them and if you're not with us you're with them attitude that bush kind of had um, and I would definitely say the nuclear family versus like the non-traditional family, the idea that there's like the loss of family values, the dysfunctional family versus the functional family. And it's not always who you think um, maybe the dysfunctional family. Sometimes the tables are turned. And I think this movie reflects a little on that. For psychology and mental health, we got guilt, grief, uh, fight or flight, family dynamics, dysfunctional family, revenge, fear, and kind of like this idea of like coming into adulthood. So what is this movie about? And I actually just took this one straight from IMDb. Wes Craven produces this remake of his 1977 classic of the same name about the Carters, an idealistic American family traveling through the great American Southwest. But their trip takes a detour into an area closed off from the public, but more importantly, from society. 
an area originally used by the U.S. government for nuclear testing that was intended to be empty, or so they thought. When the Carter's car breaks down at the old site, they're stranded, or are they? As the Carters may soon realize that what seemed like a car casualty breaking down might actually be a trap. This trap perpetrated by the inhabitants of the site who aren't pulling a prank, but are out to set up a gruesome massacre. Moving on to the subgenre. So this movie could be considered a slasher flick. Um, it could be considered like the splatter torture porn subgenre. You know, there are a lot of people being killed. This movie is very graphic, gory, and violent. But just like the original, I would put this movie under the um, redneck country bumpkin subgenre. You know, this movie has the typical cannibalistic inbred family killing people who dare step onto their land. These crazies are brutal and violent and relentless. So I'm going to go over the definition for the redneck country bumpkin subgenre. Redneck country bumpkin. This is the subgenre that usually features crazy inbred cannibalistic families whom prey on people who stumble across their land. This is the subgenre where the belief is that out in the country, out in the middle of nowhere, deep in the backwoods, people become monsters and resort to cannibalism because they have become isolated from the rest of society or cast out by society. The victims are usually lured or led to their place by traps that have been set up to capture them and they must fight for their survival. In these movies, the deaths tend to be very violent, brutal, and savage, and the victims are usually assaulted by their killers. So the first thing I'd like to go over is our good boy beast. I want to talk about our good boy of the movie. So this movie actually has two dogs in it, both German shepherds named Beauty and Beast. Sadly, Beauty doesn't make it in our movie or make it far in our movie. She ends up being killed by one of the cannibals. Beast, however, is our hero dog. He isn't in the movie as much or as prominent um, within the movie as much as like Thor was in Bad Moon, but nonetheless, Beast is still a good boy. Our movie follows the Carter family as they go cross country through the New Mexico desert on their way to California. Their car crashes um, due to someone putting spikes on the road, a dirt road off the main road. Their RV, however, is fine and they're still able to use it. And Beast doesn't really come into play until later on in the movie. We see Beast out in the hills at night um, and he finds Beauty's dead body and he starts to whimper. And then after the attack on the RV where Brenda is attacked and some of the family members are killed, we see Beast for a little bit. He's still out in the hills. It's nighttime. One of the cannibals named Goggle is in the hills watching like the chaos that ensues at the RV through his binoculars. And then he hears like a twig snap and he turns around. Nothing's there. And when he turns back to look at the family again, Beast just straight up attacks him, like bites him right on the neck and just viciously tears out his throat. And um, it's a pretty brutal kill. Like, I mean, he just kills Goggle. Like I said, just grabs him by the throat and just rips it apart. So I say, good boy, Beast. Good boy for killing that cannibal. So Beast eventually makes it back to the RV um, to where Doug, Bobby, and Brenda are. And then Doug decides to take Beast with him since he's actually going to go search for the cannibals to go get his baby Catherine back. Because during the whole attack on the RV, Ethel and Lynn are killed. Brenda is actually assaulted. Um, and then the cannibals, Pluto and Lizard, take baby Catherine and run off with her. So Doug's going to go get his baby back. So... Doug takes Beast 
and a bat and goes out into the hills to find where the cannibals live to get his baby. And this is where like Beast becomes the true hero dog. Doug has Beast um, sort of like lead the way a little bit because they're following a blood trail and they go to the opening of a mine um, and decide to go in. And Doug says, come on, big guy. I hope you're not afraid of the dark. So they go through the mine all the way through to the end. And where it ends is basically a ghost town. And then Doug radios to Bobby and Brenda. Bobby, Bobby, I followed the blood trail. It leads to a town or something out here. Bobby, Bobby doesn't answer him. So then Doug and Beast actually go down into the town, look around. Um, and Beast is actually this whole time on a leash, but he never tries to run away, nor does he ever really whimper in fear or get or like cower down. He stays calm and stays right by Doug's side. So while they're searching the town, they find this generator and they realize this has to be where the cannibals live. And then one comes out and they hear it. So Doug and Beast hide in an abandoned car. Then once the cannibal leaves and is out of sight, Doug gets out of the car, but he decides to leave Beast in the car. And I'm not really sure why he decides to leave the dog inside of the car instead of taking him. But that's what happens is he leaves the dog in the car and he says, good boy, stay. And then Doug goes off to go find Catherine. And this is like the only time you really hear Beast whimper, but I don't think it's out of fear. I think he's whimpering because he's worried for Doug. Like Beast is a very smart dog. He knows there's trouble out there and he wants to protect Doug, but he's stuck in a car and he's also a good boy. And Doug said, stay. So he's listening to, you know, Doug and staying, but he whimpers because he wants to in my opinion, he wants to help Doug. He knows there's trouble out there. So Doug ends up like fighting and killing a few of the cannibals. And then one called Big Brain at one point after Doug leaves to go find his daughter again, calls Lizard on the walkie-talkie and says, Lizard, kill the baby. And right after he says that, Beast, like after breaking out of the car, because I, I, I actually don't, sorry, I don't remember if we see him break out of the car. I'm pretty sure we do, but he gets out of the car. And after Big Brain, tells Lizard to kill the baby, Beast just straight up kills um, Big Brain. So we don't see this kill, but I can imagine it's probably just as brutal as when Beast killed Goggle because you can hear Big Brain screaming and the dog growling and barking and, you know, going to town at killing him. And then in the end, Beast and Doug bring baby Catherine back to Brenda and Bobby they, and they save the baby. So, like I said, Beast wasn't in this one as much as, like, Thor was in Bad Moon. I wish they had put Beast in more and used him more, but they used him, to me at least, they used him enough to show that he's still a hero dog, he was protecting his family, and that he's a good boy. Um, Like I said, I, I, I kind of wish they used Beast more. Like, I don't like that, and this was in the original movie too, but I don't like that Beast was out in the hills during the RV attack. I feel like as a dog, he would have heard the commotion and come running back to try to at least protect them. And I think they should have done that show that he, you know, is a good dog and or he's still a good boy, but like that he'd heard the attack and at least tried to protect his family, but was a little too late. Um, it would have been nice to see him, you know, maybe run after the ones who took the baby and then comes back to protect the family. Just, I think they should have just used beast just a little bit more, but they used him basically as much as they did in the original. So, um, but anyways, like I said, Beast is still a good boy. He's stuck by Doug, you know, and helped him save baby Catherine. And I was thinking about this, and I think just like Thor, 
I really think Beast represents strength and courage, like the fight aspect of the fight or flight mode. Because, and I think he's it's symbolic for our character Doug. Because when we meet Doug, he kind of comes off as a quote nerd, and not many people in the Carter family seem to like him because he doesn't own a gun. They see him has um, they see him as a weak person, you know, because he's not a gun toting conservative. He's you know a mild mannered man, and so he's kind of looked down upon. But when his baby is in danger, Doug does this complete 180 and goes out and seeks revenge to get his baby back. He doesn't cower in a corner and cry and go, what are we going to do? He stands up and says, no, I got to go get my child. And he finds the strength and courage to go out and take on a bunch of cannibals to save his child. And I think, like I said, Beast is very symbolic of this idea of strength and courage and Doug finding the strength and courage because Beast stays by Doug's side, you know, the whole time. And even after Doug leaves him in the car, Beast breaks uh, free and brutally kills another cannibal. You know, the dog sticks it through. You know, he stays by Doug's side. He represents the strength and courage Doug found within himself to go and seek revenge and to get his baby back. And this is the whole idea, too, is that this is actually, this whole movie is a, a lot of, like, Doug's character arc. Again, he's looked down upon by Big Bob, Brenda, and Bobby. They don't seem to like him. Big Bob makes fun of him for not liking guns. Bobby, at one point, even calls him a pussy. And Brenda is just snobby towards him throughout the whole first part of the movie. But it is Doug who survives and rescues his child. It's Doug who finds the strength and courage to go out into the hills and fight the cannibals and win. So I feel that Beast is symbolic of this. Symbolic of Doug choosing to fight instead of flee to push through his fear and save his child. I hope that all makes sense. So next I'd like to do a little compare and contrast between the remake and the 70s original. And this is one of my favorite things about doing a remake and an original is to compare the two. And one of the things I will say about this movie is this movie is a great remake. Definitely one of the best in my opinion. This movie has the same story as the original, but changed a little here and there kind of brought it into the early 2000s and up the ante. This movie did a really great job staying true to the original, but changing things to make it its own. Because you got to think about it. The truth is you can't just do an exact replica, cut and paste of the original. You have to change some things. Like, But you also can't change everything dramatically, in my opinion. So like, you can't do, like I said, a cut and paste of the original like they did with the remake of Psycho, which was a great idea, but personally, I think it was more poorly cast than anything else, but that's just my opinion. But like that didn't work, cut and paste, we just did the same thing. But you also can't change the story completely and then try to claim it as a remake like they did with, um, I forgot what year it came out, but it was around the same time, uh, Prom Night had nothing to do with the original, like nothing. They just said, here's a remake of Prom Night and then changed the story completely. Um, like I said, you can't just do a cut and paste of the original, that doesn't work. And you can't change it completely around claiming it to be a remake either, that doesn't work. So you have to stay true to the original to change things here and there to make it your own. And I think this movie does a great job doing that. So my plan is, to go over a few scenes and examples of the similarities that we have within the movie, this movie and the original, and kind of talk about it a little bit. And then I'll do the same thing for the differences. Like I'll go over a few examples 
of the differences from this one to the original and then discuss maybe why I think they made the changes or just talk about it in general or anyways, you know, sometimes I think I'm going to do something one way and then I end up doing it completely different. But I am going to start out with the similarities and then move on to the differences that I am going to do. So the plot of the movie is still the same. The Carter family, they're going across the country to California to celebrate Big Bob and Ethel's 25th anniversary, the silver anniversary, they always call it. The car breaks down in the middle of the desert. They're attacked by a group of cannibals and it turns into a fight for survival. That's the basic plot of both the remake and the original. Again, that's not the only similarities though. They kept a lot of the same names. Like I really liked that part too. They didn't change the names around. They kept the Carter clan the same. There's Big Bob and Ethel, their children, Bobby, Brenda, their oldest Lynn, who has her husband Doug with her and their infant daughter, Catherine along. So all these names stay the same. Even the two dogs' names are the same. In the original, it was Beauty and Beast. In this movie, it's Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and Beast. And they kept the same breed of dog. They didn't change the breed. They're both German Shepherds. And even a few of the cannibals' names are the same. They kept Papa Jupiter, Pluto, and Ruby. They don't have a Mars and Mercury like the original. Instead, it's Goggle and Lizard. And there's still um, a Mama character. But she isn't as present in this movie. I think you only see her once as she was in like the 70s original where she actually was um, a character that you actually saw interacting with the children and even talked and had lines. But the one mama in this one, I, I really think you only see her in one scene. So the same as this movie in the original, the Carter stop at a gas station where they meet the gas station attendant who sends them on their way eventually, you know, through the desert. Um, that stays the same. The reason why they go off the beaten path or off the main road is different which I'll go over in a little bit. But even some of the dialogue in the movie is actually kept pretty much the same as it was in the original. Like when they're at the gas station, um, Big Bob talks about, you know, being a retired cop or how he used to work on the force with the gas station attendant. Now I'm just going to call him gas attendant. Gas attendant. Well, if I do say so myself, ma'am, your husband here is quite right. This is the only southbound road going to I-88 from there, you can take 40 to California, but it's a long old drive. Big Bob. You know, that doesn't bother me a bit. I like to drive at night. I used to work the night patrol for 15 years. Gas attendant. Is that right? You a cop? Big Bob. Well, detective. Ethel. Not anymore. Thank God. Big Bob. I'm starting my own uh, security firm. So he does talk about being a retired cop in the original this one, they changed it to detective, but it's still the same idea that he was on the force. He's now retired. Ethel's happy about it. From here, the Carters, you know, head out into the desert where their car crashes after a set of spikes had been left in the road. And Big Bob and Doug both decide to go their opposite ways to find help. Big Bob is going back to the gas station and Doug heads off in the opposite direction to see what he can find. And this is the same in this one as in the original. So while Big Bob and Doug are gone, like, you know, they've gone off their separate directions. Brenda, Bobby, Ethel, and Lynn are having dinner. And again, the dialogue between them is very similar to the one they had in the um, 77 original. Lynn, I can't believe that we're stranded in the middle of nowhere on your anniversary. Brenda, you know, if we just stayed on the main road, we'd be in California right now. Lynn, uh, what I'd give for a hot shower and a cold margarita. Brenda, the beach. Lynn, uh, a massage. Ethel, I'll take a real bed. Lynn, <laughs> yeah. Brenda, the chronic. Ethel, the what? Lynn, 
Brenda? Ethel, what? Lynn, it's pot, Mom. Bobby, whoa, 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 who smokes pot? Ethel, yes, exactly, who smokes pot? Bobby, hey, has anybody seen my red sweatshirt? You know the hoodie thing in the back seat? Brenda, weren't you sleeping on it? Brenda, I haven't touched your smelly sweatshirt, okay? Why are the dogs so excited? Ethel, there's probably some rattlesnakes somewhere around. Bobby, you know how Freud would have interpreted your obsession with rattlesnakes, Mom. Lynn, Bobby, so bad. Ethel, Bobby Carter, stop that. Brenda, ugh, that's gross. And then Brenda opens the RV door and accidentally lets Beauty out where she's eventually killed by Goggle, I believe. I'm pretty sure it's Goggle that kills her. You actually don't see her get killed, but you do hear her. Moving on now to the like the idea that the premise is still the same, but it's acted out differently. Um, so in both the 70s original remake, Big Bob makes it to the gas station where he finds the uh, gas attendant about to kill themselves. In the 70s version, the gas attendant gives the backstory of like how the cannibals came to be. In the remake, he just said he did the best he could and then ends up killing himself. But the whole idea still is the same. It's just the concept's a little different. It's still Bob going back. He makes it to the gas station. He finds the attendant there who wants to kill himself. And then they have a conversation. And then that's where things are changed a little bit. And the whole attack scene um, in the RV, the attack scene with like Brenda, Lynn, and Ethel is the same from like remake to the original. Like the, they, I don't think they really changed anything to be quite honest. Like Big Bob is lit on fire on this cross to take the attention away from what's going on at the RV. Lynn, Doug, Ethel, and Bobby, they leave Brenda in the RV to go help Bob. Um, Doug at one point is even like, Brenda, keep an eye on the baby. And he runs off, but no one knows that Brenda is actually being held down on her bed by Pluto. So, and even the parakeet is still the same. In the, in the original movie, the parakeet gets killed by one of the cannibals. Uh, again, in this one, they kill the parakeet. So Lynn and Ethel come back and uh see what's going on in the rv uh lynn is scared because she sees that her baby is in dire straits ethel ends up getting shot and then lynn tries to fight off um lizard one of the cannibals and ends up dying trying to save her baby who again she fights tooth and nail for literally sacrificing herself to try and save her child this is the same as the original still a very hard scene to watch still heartbreaking to see when Doug comes back and finds her and then realizes that his baby is also missing. So Doug and Bobby come back. Bobby tends to Brenda while, again, Doug goes into the RV, finds Lynn's body, Ethel barely alive, and an infant daughter gone. This is all the same from this movie to the original. From here, so from this part, the plot stays the same. Doug goes out into the hills with Beast to find his baby girl. He goes head to head with the cannibals where Brenda, while Brenda and Bobby set up booby traps back at the RV and they end up killing Papa Jupiter. Doug is reunited with his baby with help from Ruby. That's still the same. Ruby helps him in the original save his baby. Ruby helps Doug save his baby in this one. So that stays the same. Um, of course, there are more similarities, but I'm not going to be able to go over every single one. I'm trying to just give you a gist of the similarities that I found. Um, because otherwise this show would be a lot longer. <laughs> but as I mentioned, this remake stays true to the original, taking the original story and expanding on it. They kept what was important, you know, the ideal of a, quote, normal family 
going savage. The idea that when people are put into dangerous situations, a fight for survival, they can become just as brutal and relentless as their attackers. You know, that there's this civilized all-American family can become primitive and uncivilized in order to survive. You know, Craven wanted to show that, quote, normal people can become just as savage as their attackers when it comes to revenge and survival. And this remake keeps that important aspect in the movie, never straying from the message that they were trying to send that Craven was putting in his movie that they kept it for the remake. I hope that all makes sense. Sorry. <laughs> so let me move on to the differences. There were plenty of things changed in this remake for the story um, to the story and expand on it without, again, straying away from Craven's vision. Again, I can't go over every single one, but I'm going to try to go over as many as I can to give you an idea. One difference I noticed um, right off the bat is that most of the Carter family doesn't like Doug in this movie. They look down on him, whereas in the original, they seem to care for him very much and like saw him as part of the family. And there's even like this little conversation between Lynn and Doug at one point. Lynn, you okay? Doug, tell me again why we couldn't fly like normal people. Oh, that's right. They wouldn't let your dad drive the plane. Lynn, Doug, relax, please. It's their silver anniversary and they're so happy you came. Doug, your parents can't stand me. So we see here in the short little scene that Doug even knows that like his family doesn't, their family doesn't like him. Like he flat out says like, your parents can't stand me. He knows the family doesn't like him. Um, even though Lynn tries to convince him otherwise. We also see a little bit more of this like distaste for Doug after the RV attack and Ethel dies due to her wounds between Bobby and Doug. Bobby, I'm not going to take this shit. Doug, hey, we're not going anywhere. You want to die too? Bobby, I don't fucking care. Doug, you want to die, huh? Look what they did to your mother. Look what they did to your sister, huh? You stop and think you're not a fucking child anymore. You won't make it three feet out there. We need a plan. We need to think. We need to think. Bobby, think about what, Doug? They have Catherine. They have your daughter. And you're just going to sit here and do nothing? That's because you're a fucking pussy, just like my dad said. Doug, shut the fuck up. You shut up. Shut your mouth. Bobby, fuck you. So in this scene, we realize that Big Bob really didn't like Doug. It wasn't just Doug thinking this. You know, Bobby even says, like, my dad saw you as a pussy. And the way Bobby says that, he thinks the same thing. So, but in the 70s version, there's no... Um, you know, it's not even hinted at that Doug wasn't part of the family. In the 70s original, they all loved Doug. Um, there was never a point where I thought anybody didn't like Doug. But in this movie, it's very, you know, noticeable that a lot of the family members don't like Doug. So for me, I feel like this distaste for Doug is kind of part of it, like adds to his character arc. Doug isn't seen as much, yet it's Doug who steps up to the plate and goes head to head with the cannibals in order to save his daughter. There's no hesitation, just grabs the dog, goes off into the hills, armed with only a bat, and seeks revenge against the ones who killed his wife and stole his daughter. So I really feel like they added this aspect of them not liking Doug that adds to this whole character arc and adds to his journey from going from looking down upon to being the one who steps up to the plate and is the one who basically saves the day. Another difference I noticed was uh, with the gas station attendant himself. In the 70s original, he is actually connected to the hill people, the cannibals, as he's actually Papa Jupiter's father, who, well, he basically, so the gas station attendant's wife 
had a baby girl and then they moved to this area and then she had a baby boy who kind of was like a mutant and after the wife and daughter mysteriously die in a house fire the gas station attendant like attacks his son and casts him out to the hills where he steals a woman and has you know a bunch of kids with her in the remake we find out that the gas station attendant is actually sending people to their doom he's actually sending people into the hills for the cannibals so at one point, um, he's talking to Big Bob, gas attendant. You know, uh, it's not on the map, but if you take a left at the dirt road a couple miles from here, uh-huh, it'll lead you through the hills. Probably save you a couple of hours. Can't miss it. Uh, there's an old fence right in front. So in the remake, the gas station attendant is sending people to the doom, whereas in the 70s original, he was like, don't go off the main road, stay on the main road. And he's trying to save them and protect them from the hill people. Um, we also learned that the road itself that the gas station attendant like led them on leads to nowhere, like absolutely nowhere. There's, um, it just, it's a dead end. Doug, the road dead ends in five miles. That's where the crater is. It's not a shortcut. It's just desert. Lynn, it dead ends. Doug, dead end. Brenda, I knew that old man was full of shit. So like I said, it's here where you actually realize the gas station attendant is actually sending people to die because the road dead ends. Like there's nowhere to go. So he's telling people like, hey, if you take this road, it'll save you a couple of hours. But in actuality, he's sending them to their death, sending them to be food for the cannibals. Another difference is kind of like the political angle that I feel was only hinted at in the 70s, but it's made a little bit more clearly in this movie. Like Big Bob is a gun lover, basically. Like, he's a gun-toting uh, Republican, they would say. You know, he's giving a gun to Bobby, and they're talking about um, handling the guns, and this is where you start to hear more of the political aspect. Bobby, I saw a documentary on desert snakes on the Discovery Channel, and there's some species that if you get bit, you can die within, like, 25 minutes. Big Bob, really? Bobby, yeah. Big Bob, well, I'd like to see how they stack up against this one. Ethel, I thought those were going to stay locked up, honey. Big Bob, I thought you weren't talking to me, honey. Ethel, you're right. Big Bob, relax, honey. I'm a licensed professional. Besides, I take my bullets over your prayers any day. Ethel, yeah, well, some things never change. Bobby, so what about like uh, scorpions and coyotes and stuff? Big Bob, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Bobby, hey, Doug, you want to try? Doug, hey, don't point that thing at me. Bobby, oh, don't worry, man, the safety's on. Big Bob, hey, Bobby, leave Doug alone. He's a Democrat. He doesn't believe in guns. Bobby, oh, come on, Dougie. Come here, just one shot. It makes you feel kind of powerful. You might like it. So, like I said, here it's kind of obvious that Bobby and Big Bob are like Second Amendment-loving gun-toting conservatives, and they like to pick on Doug for being a Democrat and not believing in guns. And I kind of feel like this is, in a way, it's kind of like a jab at Bush and his whole like war on terror and the conservative point of view, because as we later find out, Bob, Big Bob still dies. OK, so this is why I think it's a jab on Bush and the whole idea of like the gun loving Second Amendment, right? Uh, Second Amendment loving people, you know, the gun toting conservatives is because Big Bob still dies by the hands of the cannibal. His gun could not save him from the hill dwelling cannibal mutants. He may have been, you know, packing, but that gun did not save him, and the cannibal still managed to kill him without the use of a gun. 
And on top of that, it is Doug who steps up and takes on the mutants, only carrying a baseball bat and taking beasts with him. He manages to fight and kill some of those cannibals without resorting to a gun until the very end when he uses it um, to kill Lizard. He uses Lizard's own shotgun to kill him. So I find like this little political jab kind of a little bit funny. You know, this movie is kind of making a statement like Big Bob, the gun-loving conservative, dies by the hands of the cannibals. His gun couldn't protect him. And Doug, the Democrat who doesn't like guns, survives using his intellect, a baseball bat, and a trusty dog. So I feel like that's kind of like the political jab that they're taking in this movie. Something that was only hinted at in the 70s original, but in this remake, they make it a little more prominent that there's this political aspect. And I think that's the message for this movie trying to send is like, Big Bob, who loves his guns, still died. Doug, who doesn't like guns, is the one who survives. So hope that makes sense. The last difference I'd like to talk about is kind of the backstory to our cannibals. In the 70s original, we find out that the gas station attendant, again, had a son who was out of the ordinary. He cast him out to the hills, you know, where he steals a, a female and then starts having kids with them. And they become, you know, the hill dwelling cannibals. Um, the backstory in this movie is based on like nuclear testing sites and the damage caused by the radioactive fallout. Um, and we learn about this and it's not a big expanded on story. The seventies original had a much longer story or longer monologue about the backstory. This one's kind of just short, but it is told to Doug by one of the mutants called big brain. Doug, where's my daughter? Where is she? Answer me. Big brain. I don't know where she is. I never leave this place. Your people asked our families to leave their town and you destroyed our homes. We went into the mines. You set off your bombs and turned everything to ashes. You made us what we've become. Boom, boom, boom. So even though it's very short, we learn that the government were testing, you know, the bomb um, because we do earlier, sorry. So earlier we do see that this desert was a nuclear testing site. So, they told these people to leave their homes, made them leave their homes, but they didn't want to leave their homes. So they ran into the mines, probably thinking that the mine would shield them from the blast of the atomic bomb that's being tested out there. But when the bombs went off, they were affected by the radioactivity or the radiation that comes off of it. They stayed in the desert, becoming a family of cannibals, you know, due to the radiation, there were mutations. And then you add inbreeding on top of that causes more mutations. And they ended up resorting to cannibalism in order to survive. So, and I do think that this is in a direct correlation with like the government testing sites, like reflect, uh, sorry, reflecting on history of like the bomb being tested and no one thinking about the consequences that could happen or, you know, how the radioact, um, radioactive, um, or the radiation fallout could affect people. They just tested it without thinking of the harm it could cause. And, even the beginning of the movie, it says, between 1945 and 1962, the United States conducted 331 atmospheric nuclear tests. Today, the government still denies the genetic effects caused by the radioactive fallout. So these people were forced to leave their homes, um, not really given a choice. They didn't want to leave. They hid in the mines thinking this would save them. Instead, they were affected by the radio, you know, the radiation from the bomb, forcing them to live far from society, resorting to cannibalism to survive. And in a way, they're supposed to be a little sympathetic because these mutants were made by the hands of the people who were sworn to protect them. The government's supposed to protect the people. Instead, 
they said, you need to leave your homes. They ran into the mines thinking the mines would shield them from, you know, the blast or save them from the radiation. But it ends up actually affecting them. And they never left their town. They just stayed there and ended up, you know, resorting to cannibalism. So I think that's one of the things this movie's reflecting on is like the whole idea of, you know, the bomb being tested without thinking of the consequences of the harm it can actually cause. So I, again, I hope that makes sense. A lot of times I'm like, oh, this makes sense in my brain. But then I'm like, oh, am I really, you know, are you guys understanding it? Because sometimes, like I said, I feel like I don't convey it well to you guys, but I really hope that makes sense. So I think these differences add a lot to the story. Again, expanding on Craven's vision without changing it completely. You know, one thing I did notice within these little changes, it, it also changes a little bit of the message as well, I would say. Like, while the 70s version focused on the nuclear family in both the Carters and Papa Jupiter's clan, their lifestyles were different, but they were still both the, quote, ideal American family, the nuclear family, you know. And this is what I mean, like the little changes here now shifts the change. So we're not focused on the nuclear family anymore. Now in the remake, the message is more of that our all-American family, although the traditional nuclear family, you know, that society smiles on, is actually a little dysfunctional. While the cannibal in Bread Mutants, frowned upon by society, is more functional, working together as a family, not against one another, um, fighting for, you know, they're not fighting for dominance. They're working together, even though they're cannibals and they're killing people, they're still working together. They're a functional family working together to survive as opposed to the Carter family where we see there's a little more fight for dominance and fight for respect. So I think that some of these changes also changes a little bit of that message. You know, the seventies was we're losing our traditional values. There's no more nuclear family. You know, people are getting divorced, but here we have a nuclear family with the Carters, but we also have a nuclear family in Papa Juke's clan. So is the nuclear family always the best? You know, sending that message like, here you go. There's still two nuclear families, the ideal American family, but look how different they are. This one is more of saying like, here's your all American ideal family, but they're dysfunctional. Then we have this mutant inbred family, although cannibals are more functional and work more together as a family. So again, I hope that all makes sense. So I'm going to move on to my reviews. Bloody Disgusting says, Asia and Lavasor transported their version of the cannibal family from Nevada to New Mexico, bringing a layer of nuclear fallout to the deformed clan. Their knack for intensity and distressing survival horror worked in tandem with the amazing talents of the makeup and visual effects team to deliver one of the most unrelenting remakes of all time. Asia's take on Craven's original vision still honored it while making it its own, a common thread among the best horror remakes. Horror Obsessive says, The Hills Have Eyes is a superior remake, and not just because it has a lot to say about the world at the midpoint of the last decade, it's the rarest of films in that it takes the themes of the original and expands and improves on them. Asia's redo of the supposed classic is absolutely relentless in terms of pacing and tension. It simply does everything that it's supposed to do, but does it with style, flair, and an eye for making you think. So overall, this movie is an intense, brutal, and gruesome remake that stays true to the original while upping the ante and expanding on the story. The kills are intense, and many are actually hard to watch. Many scenes in this movie are meant to make the viewer uncomfortable, while at the same time sending the same message as the original. Anything put on screen doesn't even compare to what's going on in the real world. 
the 70s focusing on the Vietnam War, while the 2006 remake focuses on the war on terrorism. Beast is a good boy, sticking by Doug's side as he goes to get his little girl back. Beast never once leaving, cowering, or running away. Beast straight up kills some of these cannibals, cementing him as a hero dog. I do wish that Beast was used more in the movie, but nonetheless, he's still a good boy who deserves to be recognized. If you haven't seen this remake of Craven's 77 classic, you really should. I think this is one of the best remakes out there. This remake literally took Craven's vision and story, brought it into the 2000s, expanded on the story, bringing you an intense thrill ride. So I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining me here on Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoy the show. Again, thank you for listening. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you.